Good morning and welcome. If you will turn to Revelation chapter 11, I'm going to look at uh, part of that today. Would ask you to keep the uh, team that's going to Israel uh, be gone for uh, uh, basically a good part in the next two weeks. So uh, just pray that uh, it'll be a blessed time, especially uh, for those uh, first time. But if you haven't gone, you ought to consider it, pray about it. It's uh, an incredibly enlightening time. We're in Revelation chapter 11, and let's read uh, verses 1 through 14. John writing here, when he says, Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, and they'll be clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees, and the two lampstands standing before the Lord, or the God, before God, the God of the earth, reference there to uh, Zechariah chapter 4. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And these have power to shut heaven, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues, as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And then those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell upon the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Uh, no doubt they're speaking of Jerusalem. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe is past. And behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Lord, we, uh, we look to you this morning. And Father, as we read about this horrendous time that is to come upon the world, 
Lord, we sit here this morning in relative safety, for which we're thankful, Father. We're thankful, Lord, for the wonderful protection you have given to us in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we speak of these things, as we uh, look forward to that time, that this world, Lord, will be in absolute chaos and confusion. Lord, uh, we pray that we would be busy about our Father's business. Lord, I pray you've given us a message, and I ask you that we'd be faithful to that. Lord, there are many, Lord, that don't know you, Lord, in, in this day and in this time. And I pray that, Father, you would open up those opportunities and give us, Lord, we pray, the power of the Holy Spirit and boldness, Lord, to reach out with the love of Christ. Lord, as we look at this future time, we realize many people will perish. And yet, Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, you're always reaching out, always giving folks an opportunity as you speak the truth, Lord, into their lives and into their situation. Lord, we thank you that you're always uh, the escape, Lord. Lord, you're always offering rescue and help. And Father, even as we think of these things today, Lord, may we just simply be reminded of that. All that we have in you, we thank you for your marvelous grace. We thank you for your, your great favor, Lord, uh, this week and this day. And Father, we commit this time to you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, as we look at this chapter here, we're reminded uh, that there is going to be a future temple. As John is writing this at around 95 AD, uh, there has not been a temple for about the last 25 years. Um, it was basically uh, removed uh, uh, as uh, the nation rebelled against the occupying power of Rome. The Roman armies came in 70 AD, uh, and the Roman uh, general Titus was in charge of his, his forces there. And basically, not only did they practically level the city, they leveled and removed the temple. I heard a story basically that uh, a Roman soldier had thrown his uh, torch uh, into the temple. Um, they actually really wanted to save it because it was like one of the wonders of the world um, and accidentally threw the, uh, the torch into the temple and, and it basically burned down and all the gold melted and went down into the stones and so basically they tore the temple apart to retrieve all the gold uh, that had uh, been in the fire. Now, there has not been a temple for close to the last 2,000 years, but we know here from the scripture, uh, from this one and other scriptures as well, that there will be a temple that will be rebuilt, and this is what uh, the scholars refer to as the tribulation temple. There's another temple coming, uh, the millennial temple, and uh, we're, you know, we're going to be serving the Lord on the earth uh, at that particular time, and I believe it's going to be another temple, not this particular temple here. But the problem that, that exists today as far as building a temple in Jerusalem, and for those of you who have been there, for those of you who have not that are going with us uh, this week, uh, uh, you'll go there to the Wailing Wall, which is the re Solomon's retaining wall. And that's why the Jews pray there. Uh, the Jews uh, were always instructed to pray toward, Jeru toward Jerusalem and toward the temple. And so... Uh, uh, you know, many of the, the Orthodox Jews uh, will go to the Welling Wall and they'll take their prayer and they'll put it in a crack in the wall. And, and so, and above that, uh, the problem is it's occupied 
um, by an Islamic holy site. And of course, it's the, the, the Dome of the Rock. It's that uh, golden dome that sort of kind of uh, um, sets off the, the skyline of Jerusalem. Anytime you see Jerusalem, you see this big golden dome uh, sitting right there. So that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem because that's kind of on the site somewhat. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think the last couple of times that I was, I was there, uh, we were not even allowed on that site. I remember years ago, um, probably 1988, uh, which was actually the first intifada, and uh, we were on the, 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 the temple site there outside of that mosque, and Pastor Bill was giving us a Bible study, and he had his Bible out. And all of a sudden, uh, the Islamic guardians of that site came rushing over very quickly and told him that he needs to close his Bible, uh, no Bible study here, no prayer here, uh, except it would be you know, uh, Islamic prayer. And what that is is the most contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. Um, when you think about you know, the, the tensions over the Middle East, that's ground zero, uh, the, the temple site. Uh, and there's many organizations uh, uh, in Israel that are basically planning for the reconstruction and the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of the priesthood. Um, I remember years ago, we went to a place called the Temple Institute, and uh, there they have uh, uh, some of the priestly garments and uh, some of the uh, different instruments and so forth they would use uh, in the whole sacrificial system once again. So they're kind of geared up and they're ready to go. But of course we know if, it, if, it, if that ever happened, there would be a holy jihad like this world has never seen, um, you know, because we find that uh, the tensions over there, even over some of the smallest things, flare up into something that becomes international news. Uh, but the, the thing is, that is where every Jewish temple has been built. That's where God instructed and directed his people to build the temple. So that's why it's very sacred, uh, very important to them. I think it was somewhere between seven and 800 AD, I forget exactly the dates, uh, as when the Dome of the Rock was built. And it's, and it's so-called believed by the, um, by, you know, in Islam, that this was the site uh, where Muhammad ascended to heaven. And of course, we know uh, much different than that, but uh, that's basically the belief uh, and so forth. Now, the thing is, it will be built again. There's no doubt about it. But we know that it will be built again in unbelief. Um, they, you know, that's, why the, that's why, really, in a sense, when you think about, yes, the Roman army destroyed that building in that place, but God had it destroyed. Remember when the Lord was crucified? Uh, and we find that there was an earthquake, and the, 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 the curtain uh, that separated the, you know, the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, was ripped asunder, torn asunder from top to bottom. And there was a statement in that. God was simply saying now, because of what you know, Christ had done, what Messiah had done, now the way into the presence of God was open. Uh, and it's not so much you know, about temples and buildings anymore. Um, it's really about, in a sense, when you think about it, it's God with his original intention. And, and temples were only, in a sense, they were sort of a teaching tool. Uh, God wants to dwell in the human heart. That, that, that's, where, that's where God wants to dwell. That's where the temple is. You know, you know God dwelling within our hearts, in our midst, and in, 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 our, in our lives. So we see this whole sacrificial system 
uh, was basically fulfilled in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so that's why we find uh, and understand that this, this whole temple idea as it's being you know, rebuilt you know, to, to you know, um, institute the sacrificial system once again in hopes that it will bring Messiah. But again, Messiah's already come. And that's why if you want to understand what, what the Lord uh, believes about this temple, all you have to do is look at the first part of Isaiah chapter 66. Uh, where, where basically the, the prophet speaks about uh, he who sacrifices a bull, it's like cutting a, 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 you know, a dog's head off. Um, because, again, the sacrificial system has is, is basically been nullified. It's been fulfilled with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when we see the, the millennial temple built, it's a memorial temple, okay? It's not a place where, you know, sacrifices, you know, are, uh, are, are done, um, in, in a sense of worshiping the Lord. That has all been fulfilled in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now he says in verse one, then I was given a reed, which was basically a 10 foot measuring rod. Uh, and the angel stood and saying, rise and measure the temple of God uh, and the altar and those who worship there. So this is a spiritual measuring. Uh, he's measuring this whole system because you know it's going to happen very soon. Judgment is coming. Uh, we, we understood that, we understand that, yes, judgment is coming to the Gentile world, but also, too, there's a judgment coming to Israel. And in and, and through that judgment, God's going to awaken them. Uh, and God's going to use, you know, the, the, uh, the, the invasion and all that sort of thing. He's going to use that. They're going to come to a place of absolute desperation uh, where they are going to be forced to look up and to cry out. And we know the Lord is going to return at that time and rescue the Jewish people and reveal himself to them. And we've kind of talked about that uh, somewhat. Uh, you know, when you think about um, this whole matter of the temple, remember Jesus in John chapter 4 in the conversation? Because the whole issue, uh, you know, she was a Samaritan. The whole issue uh, of worship came up. Uh, and listen to what Jesus said, prophetically speaking about uh, what he was going to do and the whole matter of worshiping at certain sites and temples and, and that sort of thing. He says here in John uh, 4.20, he says, our father, uh, or she says, our father worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Uh, they were worshiping on Mount Gerizim, a false site. And that was a, a constant issue uh, in the Old Testament of worshiping um, you know, at, at different altars. Uh, it was one place where, where God was to be worshiped, and that was Jerusalem. But here's what he says. The hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Uh, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So it's not in Jerusalem uh, after uh, the crucifixion of Christ uh, with the institution of the New Testament. Uh, it's where God now comes into the heart. Um, where he comes into the life, where he changes wonderfully. You know, the, when you think about your life, you know, your life is an altar. <laughs> like we were, just a few moments ago, we're, we're lifting up praise. We're, we're giving him thanks. We're, we're, we're adoring him. And, and that's not something that we just do here. In a sense, maybe this might be, in a sense, a primer uh, for what we do, in a sense, all week. 
Remember here, Jesus said in this John chapter 4, if there's anything that God is seeking, yes, we are servants, but he's seeking worshipers to bring us into that most intimate of all relationships where our hearts are interfacing with him. That's why it's important that, that we have times of worship during the course of our week. I think there needs to be a point, in a sense, every day where we spend time with the Lord in our, what we call our devotions, in our prayer times, where we're interfacing with the Lord and we're sensing him speaking to us through his word. Uh, there's something, you know, uh, there's something about prayer, and it's inexplicable because I pray, you know, I, I, I pray every day. Um, and, and I know, I know what it feels like not to pray. Do you know that feeling? Where it just seems like you're kind of behind the eight ball all day long. Nothing's coming together. Uh, your thinking is, is not aligned properly. Um, you know, you have uh, foot and mouth disease. And it uh, just seems like everything isn't working right. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, when you pray, it, it's not as if uh, fireworks go off or anything like that. But it just seems to be that uh, as you spend time with the Lord, he just sort of ordains your day. You're in the right place at the right time. Uh, you, you got the right thing to say to, to, the, to the right people. And, and that's why it's so important that we do, we interface. And, and really, when you think about prayer and, and Bible study, it's worship. <laughs> we're worshiping right now. In, in a sense, as we're focusing on the Lord and thinking about him and adoring him for the great and awesome God that he is. Now, remember, too, over in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, Paul writes this. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price or at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, uh, which are God's. Now, we're told in verse 2, back in chapter 11, uh, to leave out the court, which is outside the temple, do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Uh, now, I think here basically what we find is the problem is solved. Many of the, many of the experts, and there's been, uh, I think, uh, one more notable, I think his name is Asher, Asher Kaufman, uh, that they've done a lot of archaeological studies, and they've discovered that the real temple site is about 60 to 70 yards north above where the Dome of the Rock is. And so very possibly, that's probably no doubt where it's going to be, um, and I would imagine that the authorities in Jerusalem with the Islamic authorities have maybe uh, talked about this and maybe tried to negotiate this, uh, but there's certainly no agreement at this particular time. But we know there's going to be a new temple. No doubt that's where it's going to be. Uh, there are two other, there are two other uh, uh, there's the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque. Uh, and then there's a little thing called the Dome of the Spirits, and that's where uh, they believe the Jewish temple, Solomon's temple, originally was. Now, we, here's what we believe. The person who's going to uh, broker uh, this agreement is the Antichrist because uh, he's going to make a covenant with the Jews. Uh, that's what's going to kick off the tribulation period, okay? And uh, he's going to have such a satanic charisma that he's going to be able to talk any, anybody into anything. 
He's just going to have that ability. So we truly believe he's going to be the key figure uh, that's going to broker this agreement between the Jews. And, and look, at, look at all of our presidents. I mean, actually, you know, going back to Jimmy Carter, I can still see pictures of Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, trying to broker an agreement between the Palestinians and, and the Jews and so forth. And every president since then uh, has attempted to do something um, to try to negotiate some kind of peace to that particular, uh, you know, situation over there in the Middle East. But, but uh, it's only going to be this guy who comes along that the Bible refers to, you know, the several different names. So we're going to call him uh, generically uh, the title, the Antichrist, because that's the one that's kind of uh, stuck. Everything else kind of just, uh, you know, um, never really uh, identif seemed to identify him. You know, to us it does. Uh, you know, Paul has three different names in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, but we, John... Uh, gives us this name, the Antichrist. And so uh, we think it's going, we, we're pretty sure it's going to be, he's going to be the one to do this. And then he's going to commandeer the temple and um, basically require to be worshiped. You know, the Bible tells us about this. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 speaks about it, referring to it as the, the, the abomination that makes desolate. Uh, Jesus spoke about it in Matthew 24, 15, referring to it as the abomination of desolation. Paul speaks about it in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And I just want to turn there and reference that for you. I think that's a very important one. And in verse 3 of Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes this. Uh, and he's talking here, you know, about this future time and particularly identifying, kind of profiling the Antichrist. Uh, in this chapter, Paul gives him three different names. And uh, it's uh, the son of perdition and um, the lawless one. And uh, I can't think of the, uh, the other name that he gives to him. The, um, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The man of sin, that's, that's the name. The man of sin is revealed, uh, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, and so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And I think, I think many people, I mean, it's preposterous to us who know the true and the living God, but I don't think that's far-fetched for many people. They're, they're going to think that, yeah, this is the Messiah, yeah, he's some, some kind of, at least some kind of emanation from God. I mean, we've got a lot of people running around today. Uh, you know, the goddess movement. You know, Shirley MacLaine and the goddess movement. Uh, they're convinced that they're, you know, you know, that they're goddesses and that sort of thing. And I think there's a lot of men over the course of history have tried to exalt themselves, you know, as God and put themselves in the place of God. Isn't there something in our human nature that, you know, that appeals to us? Remember the first temptation to Adam and Eve was, you know, if you take, partake of the fruit, you're going to be like God. If you just eat that tree, that tree's got some special dynamic in it, and that was the lie from the devil. I, I don't think it was any, any different than any other tree, okay? It was just the disobedience issue that brought in the sin, that brought in the death. I think that was just, you know, we call it an apple tree, and... Uh, uh, I don't think it was any different than any other apple tree. If it was an apple tree, who knows? But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, there's something, I think, in the human nature 
that, it, it, that God, God power appeals to us. Where, you know, even to the, even to the regular ordinary guy, I, I, let me run my life. Don't tell me what to do. I, I, you know, I want to be the captain of my ship and the, you, know, uh, you know, I want to control my own destiny. And the fact of the matter is we can't. And when we try, we fail miserably. And, and that's, God created that. God created that, uh, you know, that, that thing in us. You know, it's like, was it uh, Romans chapter 820? Um, that, uh, you know, life has basically been destined to futility. In other words, to emptiness without God. And if God isn't in it, uh, isn't in our life, uh, you know, what do we have? We have nothing. You know, we have some material stuff. Uh, we have some little enjoyment here and there, but we really don't have any true life. Remember, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, and life in a very abundant and awesome way. And, and I think, you know, we oftentimes, we have to learn that through our experience, don't we? You know, sometimes, you know, like grow, if you grew up in a Christian home, you know, yeah, you went to church, and you did what mom and dad wanted you to do, and you went through all the rituals, and, you know, you jumped through all the hoops, uh, but you had all these questions, and, and they were demonstrated in the fact that when you left, the, left your Christian home, uh, you just went out to do your own thing. And then in course of time, you came to realize, yeah, mom and dad were right. After you, you know, you fall, you make all the, you know, you know, it's interesting how you, you tend to look at other people and you think, well, I'm not going to make that mistake. I won't make that mistake. Yeah, yeah, I'm learning all this stuff from all these other people and the mistakes they're making. You know what? You make your own mistakes. You know, we're so creative. We make our own little special mistakes. Now, he mentions here something interesting. Uh, 42 months. And when you look at Verse 3 and verse 4, we have two different, two different time periods mentioned here. Uh, we have 42 months and 1,260 days. Uh, and, and they both, if you calculate them out, they're three and a half years. Okay? Uh, so what we have here is an identification uh, noting basically the different parts of the different halves of the tribulation. 42 months, the first half. 1,260 days, the second half. Okay? So, so John is very through the Spirit, interestingly, indicating that. Same amount of time, but, but giving us indicators of which is the first and which is the second half. And I find it also, too, where it says here, um, this, the outer court is given to the Gentiles. Do you know that when the temple was built, the furthest outer court was called the court of the Gentiles? In other words, if you were a proselyte to Judaism, as a Gentile, you could come to Jerusalem and you could worship. But there was a wall there, and you couldn't go any further than the court of the Gentiles. And so, interesting where this place, where, where, what's going to be allotted to that. So it kind of, kind of speaks to, a, to the fact that that, that, um, that mosque will continue to stand there. Um, and I find another interesting thing here, too. Because when he speaks about uh, the holy city, Jerusalem, being tread underfoot, you know, for 42 months. Uh, that takes us to Luke 21, where it speaks about um, th that Jerusalem will be, Jesus said, trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Folks, that's what this is a reference to. This time is fulfilled. 
the time where the Gentiles are basically running and controlling the world, it's done. God is stepping into history now. And like we said before, as we said before, this is going to be basically, yes, God is going to deal with the Gentiles and their rebellion and their sin and all that, those who have not turned to Christ. Because remember, during this period, multitudes of people are going to turn to Christ. Multitudes will die as well. Um, but uh, this is God dealing now with the Jewish people, bringing them. Remember, bringing them, as Paul speaks about, and we talked about that. Yeah, you, need to, uh, you need to look at chapters 9, 10, and 11. 9, Israel past. Chapter 10 of Romans, Israel present. Chapter 11, Israel future. Uh, as a believer, you need to look at that and understand that because the church, oftentimes through the ages, has, has misunderstood God's dealing with the Jewish people. And Paul's telling us there that he's not finished with them. And so we find here, at, particularly at this particular point now, we're moving into the fact that God is really dealing and bringing, and also too, there's a judgment taking place here, but he's bringing the Jewish people to that place where he says, Paul says, and he's really referring in a sense to the remnant, that all Israel will be saved. And again, he knows that particular number. Uh, but remember, whether it's, whether it's the Jews or whether it's the Gentiles, do you know what? It's always a remnant. It's always a remnant. And I'll tell you what, we need to walk out of here this morning and thank God we're part of that remnant. Amen. You know, thank you, Jesus. The most important thing is that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That that's the most critical thing. And ha having that done, if, if you know that, if you know that, I'll tell you what, you can be happy as a clam. You can praise God because no matter what else is negative going on in your life, man, you, you, you got your reservation for heaven. And I'll tell you what, because this life's going to be over a lot sooner than any of us ever realized. Now, in verse 3, we meet these two prophets are referred to as my witnesses. Uh, God is simply saying that, identifying them. And we see that these guys are basically given great powers, tremendous powers, uh, powers to protect themselves, powers to perform miracles. And what we see here, they're sort of an Old Testament kind of nature. Very Old Testament-like as we look at them. And let's read it here. Uh, verses 3 uh, through 6. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy uh, 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So this three-and-a-half-year period, second half of the tribulation. Uh, these are the two olive trees that, that Zechariah chapter 4, verse 3 refers to. And what, that, what that's a reference to is that these guys, whenever you think about an olive tree, um, and of course, if we were in the context of um, you know, biblical times, uh, that basically speaks about oil. Um, and, and the anointing oil you know, for the Jew was a, sort of a mixture that had to do with olive oil. And what, it, what, what God is simply saying here, these two guys, they're, they're anointed with God's oil and anointed for a particular uh, you know, special task here. And they're just not just anointed like anybody. These guys are like trees. These guys have tremendous power. And so he goes on to say, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must in this manner be killed. Uh, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. So the big question here about these two guys, and of course, if, you've, <laughs> if you're a student of prophecy, 
Uh, you've probably heard all the different opinions, you know, who they are. Uh, and I'm sure you have your own opinion. That's okay. That's, a, that, that's, that, that's fine. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, when you look at these two guys, uh, I think the best candidates for these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And I'll tell you why. Look at, when you look at verses uh, 5 and part of verse 6, uh, Elijah performed these miracles. He called down fire. As a matter of fact, uh, I have the opportunity to do the teaching about Elijah on Mar Mount Carmel. I'm going to be standing on Mount Carmel in, in a couple days giving this teaching about Elijah. So uh, I've been thinking about this. And uh, so anyway, he did. He called down fire on his enemies. And you remember the, the prophets of Baal, remember? Yeah. And like, and like 450 prophets of Baal and called fire down on the altar and hacked them up and so forth. Um, and then we see Moses here uh, in the latter part of verse 6, uh, turning the waters uh, to blood and, and, and all manner of plagues. Uh, so uh, these here basically are miracles of judgment. But remember this. The last promise of the Old Testament was in Malachi chapter 4. And the Lord says there through Malachi, that I am going to send the prophet Elijah before the great and, and terrible day of the Lord. And as a result, he's going to turn the hearts. So here in God's grace, he's put these anointed, these two anointed individuals, you know, on the earth. And remember, too, you know, their miracles of judgment are defensive. They're not offensive for those who try to kill them. And God's going to protect them until their ministry, you know, is finished. And, um, you know, remember, too, also, that when Jesus with uh, Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration in um, uh, Matthew 17, and in verse 3, we find out that uh, they have a visitation by Moses and Elijah. Now, we don't know exactly what they spoke about on that mountain. Because why? Peter. <laughs> Pete stuck his foot in his mouth. And uh, I think Peter is probably one of the few guys that's been rebuked by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe I should say I'm second. <laughs> but we don't know exactly what that conversation was until we get over to 2 Peter chapter 1. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, we find verse 16 that the conversation was about his coming. We don't know that exactly from, from the transfiguration account. But, what, but Peter tells us over in 2 Peter 1.16, he tells us it, he, he was basically, basically talking about his coming. And so I, that's why I believe it's going to be, and one of the other candidates is Enoch. And the reason Enoch is a candidate is because he was translated. Okay, Elijah, Elijah translated, okay, never saw death. Uh, we know Moses did. Um, and Enoch in chapter 5, he walked with God and he was not for God took him. Uh, early translation. Uh, did you know we, when we studied Genesis that in chapter 6 you have the judgment flood? And in chapter 5, you have this guy, Enoch. He walked with God, and he was not, and he was taken. It's a type of the church. It's a type of the rapture. 
in chapter 5, before what? The judgment of chapter 6. Noah, who is a type of the Jew, and he's protected in the ark, and he goes through the flood. So you have interesting little pictures back there uh, looking forward to what God would do. And I think it's interesting how you look at many different Old Testament little pictures and vignettes. Uh, they're prophetic of what God would do uh, in the future. The Old Testament is filled with these kinds of things, and that's the beautiful thing about reading the Bible and discovering some of these insights. We saw a lot of different stuff uh, as we've been, uh, we're just finishing up Genesis on Wednesday night. Uh, but in reality, we don't know who it's going to be. So, you know, you take your guess. You know, who, it, who, who you think, it, that's, that's okay. But I think it's going to be Moses and Elijah um, because of the nature of the miracles here. Um, and, um, you know, as we look at these guys, you know, they're clothed in sackcloth, very, very, very much Old Testament-like uh, prophets. Now, uh, Verse 7, when they finish their, trans their testimony, and uh, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. So, so just like, you know, the prophets of old, um, they're killed. You know, uh, remember the, the, the writer of Hebrews says the world was not worthy of them. And so we see that these people, these men basically, uh, when their ministry was fulfilled. And that's why I think it's also, you know, insightful for you and I that as you serve the Lord and you faithfully commit yourself to him, you know, you're indestructible until your, until your day and your time. And, I th I, you know, one of the best things to assure a good long life, serve the Lord. What, what other purpose do you have? You just sit around in a rocking chair? Go fishing? Play golf? I don't think so. What a great calling that we have. And we're all called to be servants, aren't we? We're all called to serve him. And so again, these, these anointed individuals um, are basically indestructible until uh, their time is up and their work is done. But look what happens here. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified here. So John basically uh, is, is, is giving us here the location and we find here it's the Antichrist. Uh, that's a, another name for him is the beast. And so it's the Antichrist basically who orders his death. Um, and it's just like the spirit of Antichrist through the ages have been murdering people. Remember Jesus said about Satan, he's a murderer. He's a liar, he's a thief, and he is a murderer. And the spirit of Antichrist, energized by Satan, uh, has been at work throughout the ages uh, doing its best to, to, to murder God's people in any way. Uh, relative to the Jew, we refer to it as anti-Semitism. Relative to the church, it's persecution. But it's basically Satan uh, wanting to destroy God's people in any way uh, that he can. And so these men are killed. And again, John here, um, in, a, in a kind of a Bible code, is telling us here, it's Jerusalem. And, you know, Jesus spoke about the very interesting relationship between the prophets and the city of Jerusalem. He says over in Luke chapter 13, I'll read it to you, 13, 33 of Luke. Jesus says, nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
the one who kills the prophets and, the, and stones the one, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. So he says, see, your house has left you desolate. Interestingly, early on, he's referring to it as my house. My house should be a house of prayer. And so the rejection has taken place. It's been settled in their hearts. So he says, okay, it's not my house anymore. It's your house. See, your house has left you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, I really see God's heart there, how he wants to gather people unto himself. I think of it today in our country, in our nation, around the world. You know, how the, the gospel has, has, has gone out. And we, we kind of we were talking about this last week a little bit, weren't we? Uh, about the, the, when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, that last person. They're, they're out there somewhere. And, and, and it's the heart of our God to gather people as the gospel goes out and, and it touches their life. And I know, by and large, most people are not willing. I, I know that. We know that. And I think sometimes we may hold back. But I think we need to constantly remember that you and I are the people that God wants to use to get that message out. They need to hear the message. And you know something? There, there, there are individuals in your sphere of activity people that you know, that, that in a sense, God wants to use you. You're the messenger. You're the ambassador. Your family, your, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your relatives. I think sometimes we think, well, somebody else will do it. No, no. <laughs> That's the easy way out. He, he wants to use you and me. Well, you say, I'm not capable. Well, who is? Paul said, who's sufficient for these things? Nobody is. Nobody's perfectly capable. You find out when you open your mouth, the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, he kind of kicks in. Kind of kicks in and begins to, you know, impact. I've discovered oftentimes when uh, I felt like I've had nothing to say, um, I start talking and all of a sudden it comes. The, the inspiration, it comes. So don't uh, be careful you don't just marginalize your ministry. The opportunities that God gives, you know, to each one of us to reach out and to touch lives. That, that's the heart of our God. He's willing to, he's, today he wants to gather people, you know, into his kingdom and into uh, basically uh, relationship with himself. Then verse 9, we're told here, as the world looks on, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. Uh, so how are they going to do that? By satellite. By satellite, real time. They're going to be able to see this whole event taking place. And I think they're going to simply say, well, finally, man, these guys are dead. Man, happy days are here again. Let's have a big party. Have you noticed about a world, it's, it, 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 it's, it's, it's about having a good time. It's about entertainment. 
I think that's the mantra of today. Entertain me. It's kind of like Christmas. But more like anti-Christmas. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another. I always kind of wondered, did it correlate with Christmas? I don't know. But uh, it's an event. It's an event. And, and, and maybe some of these gifts are some of the, uh, you know, presidents and powerful figures as maybe they have coordinated to squelch and put these guys to death. But here's why. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Do you wonder how they tormented them? The truth. The, the truth will either torment you or set you free. I uh, was watching a, uh, a murder mystery. And this man, I was so, this a true story. Do you ever just kind of want to reach for your TV and, you know, strangle somebody? He kidnapped this eight-year-old eight year little girl out of her bedroom, climbed into the bedroom, saw the light on, climbed into the bedroom, just pulled into an apartment complex. She wakes up, and, and he's running to his car, his truck, and uh, takes off in his truck and has her in his lap, and he's lying to her, telling that he's, a, he's, a, uh, um, he's an off-duty policeman. Drives out to somewhere, um, out in the woods somewhere, and uh, rapes her, cuts her throat from ear to ear. She says, I can remember him dragging me by the feet out into the woods and just left her there. She says, I heard him get back in the truck. She was found two days later by some kids playing. They, some, one of the kids kicked the ball, hit her foot. She couldn't move anywhere. She just couldn't move. She was so incapacitated. The case basically went cold. And 20 years later, a couple detectives took up the case. And during that 20-year period, DNA had been introduced into criminal investigation. And they discovered the guy in another state, Little Rock, Arkansas. And they brought him in for questioning, and he just, he was saying, I can finally get this off my chest. I can finally, for 20 years, he had been living with that. And I don't know how the Lord had been maybe reaching out to him during that time. But I think there's a lot of people, maybe not to that degree, but they're tormented by sin. The Bible tells us sin has torment. 
Fear has torment. And it's only as the truth comes in, God's truth comes in. And tells us, hey, we don't have to live like that. That, that if we confess that God is faithful to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you thankful for that? I am so thankful. I'm confessing all the time. We have such a wonderful God. And no matter what the sin is, that he will forgive, that he will cleanse. That's why for you and I, folks, we, we should never carry sinful issues beyond the course of one day. Because that's the, that's the problem. The longer you carry it, you kind of learn how to sort of live with it. But it's always there. It's always there. And for you and I, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. You know, that's our message. You can be forgiven. Because I'll tell you what, you know what, you know what the, you know what's destroying our world today? Sin. And, and, and for the unbeliever, they don't know that. They're blind. We only know it because we only know the damage of sin and what sin does because of what the Holy Spirit has done for us, that he's enlightened us and set us free and, and indicated when, you know, sin comes into the equation of your life. Like there's a sense of, ah, that's, I can't do that. That's not right. So I think that's the torment, is facing the truth and not willing to relinquish, to give it over. And so in verse 11, the party's over. I think God says, watch this. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Man, resurrected, raptured, received into heaven. You know, Jesus says you can kill the body, but the soul is immortal. Fear him who could put the soul in hell, he says. Don't fear him who can kill the body. Many, many of us will never have to really get to that point. But many of our brothers and sisters throughout history and, and even presently in different parts of the world face death. Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Well, I imagine if any of us knew what was in heaven, we'd probably be in a little more hurry to get there. Why linger down here? No, I don't have a death wish, please. Believe me. But I think if we knew what was up there, we'd be like, well, let's get it on. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. I guess so. Kind of like a Lazarus resurrection. 
they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. They ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Jerusalem. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest of, were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And remember, we saw there will be three woes. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So then, what does that really have to do with you and me today? Simply this. You and I are called to be a witness. The more accurate term is martyr. In other words, to be a witness even to the point of sacrificing your life. And you know, I was thinking about, uh, well, look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Because here's, here's what we find our power source. And it's interesting what Jesus said here, right before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. He said this to the disciples. He says, but you shall receive power. It's the word dunamis. In other words, it's a dynamic power that transforms and changes the heart and the mind. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And look, notice what he says here. You shall be witnesses to me. In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. I was thinking about a few Old Testament saints who were in very challenging situations. But they were faithful to the Lord and they were witnesses. Because I think a lot of times, too, we'd say, well, you know, I'd do better if I was in another situation. If things were a little bit different, I know I could be better. But, you know, I believe God wants to use us right where we are. I, I think we need to be careful that we're not making, mis making excuses. And I was thinking about a few, again, reflecting on a few of these Old Testament uh, cow, uh, characters. But Joseph and Pharaoh. Here he's at the right hand of the, right hand of the power of, of, you know, the, the, the world, first world uh, power, Egypt. Then you have uh, Esther and King Ahasuerus. She's at the right hand of power. And remember how she was challenged? Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes. Here you got all these individuals, God's people. They're at the right hand of power. They're being challenged in their faith, but they're being faithful to be a witness. And we know it could have, it could have cost Nehemiah's head because he was, um, you know, the guy, the, the, the wine keeper or whatever it was, uh, which kind of chief of staff is really what he was. Then there was Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And as a matter of fact, it was Daniel and three different, you know, Darius and 
whoever else it was, uh, Belshazzar. Faithful in every one of those situations. But you know what about every one of those situations? They were either slaves or they were in captivity. Yet, they were faithful in their relationship and in their walk with God. And God wonderfully used them. We need to be witnesses, folks. We need to share our faith. As we close, I want to pray for you that you would have the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life. To not only be a witness, but really to represent Jesus Christ in any and every way. We need his dynamic power. I want you to stand up. I'm going to pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, how we look to you today. And we want to thank you, Lord, for your marvelous grace. Lord, like Peter said, that everything for life and godliness has been given to us in Christ. And yet, Father, at times we, we back away. Or, Lord, we're filled with fear. Lord, or we're distracted. There's some other business at hand. Lord, help us, I pray, to be busy about your business. You have saved us with an everlasting salvation. And I pray, Father, in this matter of representing you, opening our mouth, speaking the truth. I think sometimes we're afraid we might torment people. And sometimes, Lord, when we've opened our mouth, Lord, there's been that kind of reaction. But, Lord, you said the truth will set us free. So I pray for us this morning, dear blessed Lord. Father, fill us afresh. And, Lord, if there's any sin there, forgive us now. And fill us afresh with your precious spirit. We need your life. We need your power. We need your purity. We need your holiness. We lack so much, Lord, and everything that we need, we find in you. So how I pray, Father, for your spirit to be poured out upon our lives, to equip us, to empower us, that we might bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.